the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. I am Seth Liebson. I read some years ago, uh, George Will said that when he wakes up in the morning where he knows he's on deadline, he knows it's a glorious day and he looks forward to it and jumps out of bed to get to it. On a day I'm interviewing Pete Peterson, I have the same exact feeling. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. We visit with him regularly on Fridays. Pete, welcome back. How are you, man? So good to be back with you, Seth. Doing so, well. so good to have you. Thank you. Pete, I have a lot I want to do with you today, if, if, if you can help, if, if you have the time for it. Uh, yeah. a, light, a slightly less famous Pete named Townsend wrote a song called The Kids Are All Right. Mm. And um, they're not, Pete. They're not. We're getting a I mean, you're, you're, you're the dean at a graduate school, but you spend a lot of time on college campuses. You spend a lot of time in elementary, secondary education. Uh, the data is coming in left and right about the struggles our children are having, particularly when it comes to mental health. A lot of it had to do with what we put them through through COVID. I, I just, what's your sense as someone who, you know, is um, in the business of training uh, young minds? Uh, what, what, what do you, what, what's your thought? What are you seeing going on right now? Well, I think we're just beginning to understand the full scope and scale of the impact on kids in particular, K-12, uh, by the school shutdowns. Uh, we always knew, as uh, people involved in public policy, that when you make decisions based on a short-term goal, which in this case was um, the, the goal of reducing the number of COVID infections, that there was going to be a price to pay that, frankly, was not going to be known for at least a year uh, to a number of years afterwards. And, frankly, when the goal, and we've talked about this before, in public policy, when you focus on one single criteria for success, in this case, again, it was uh, reducing the number of COVID cases at the exclusion of all other measures, even within the public health field, mm -hmm. uh, then that's going to be your single criteria and set of goalposts by which you're going to measure the success or failure of a policy. Now, if the goal is more broadly the health of our kids, we are now just beginning to understand the impact, particularly on issues of mental health, uh, particularly on issues related to scholastic achievement uh, because of these shutdowns. And uh, now the pendulum swings to the long-term impacts of those decisions that were made uh, for short-term gains. Let, let, me, let me follow up on a couple angles of what you just said, Pete, if I can. Um, first, this point. You, you were speaking about how we, we were looking in a massively important public policy issue that the coronavirus came, brought to us. But you say we were looking at it only with, what, one silo or one 
you know, variant of it, or not, not, right. not, not through the immunology variant or epidemiological variant, but right. public policy one lens. lens. Right, one yeah. lens. At the expense of all others, including within the health field, mental health particularly, but also physical health, and a lot of delays on screenings yep. and things like that, which, which, which got delayed. Um, is this part and parcel of a larger problem in academia generally? You know the old uh, line that you know people used to write dissertations on, uh, you know, the Civil War. Then they started writing dissertations on a year in the Civil War, then a battle in the Civil War, <laughs> then a day in the Civil War. You know that yeah. kind of thing. It got narrower yeah. and narrower. The academic scholarship got smaller and smaller, more and more. Yeah. So, is is there a relationship to what that has fed into the larger public policy debates? No, I think that's an excellent point, Seth. Uh, you know, that, that old saw that has been said about academia that people get to learn more and more about less and less, right, I right. think, is, is, is certainly applicable here. But when it comes to the, the public policy space mm-hmm. and put within a political environment, you know, we remember, uh, as with many things, um, former President Trump put it I think quite bluntly, that he had feared in those early stages that the cure was going to be worse than the disease. And for saying something like that, he was abjectly ridiculed, uh, particularly by the left and certainly by the media, for even questioning uh, the focus on reducing COVID cases. And Trump had an understanding, and this is certainly true when you when you look at the decisions we're being being made, and even when you hear of other experts like a Jay Bhattacharya at right. Stanford, just right. to call out one, or um, others. Uh, there were several over uh, at Johns Hopkins that were saying there are other implications to these decisions here. That if the goal is health and not just reducing COVID cases we need to be considering. And so you're right, this is certainly endemic um, within uh, academia, but it's become increasingly so within our public policy field, which requires a much broader understanding, not only of, of the public, but also what is our goal here? What are we trying to achieve? Don't you, thank you for that. that that's well said. Don't you think too, Pete, that, there's a level of either callousness or cruelty. You know, we used to say we design laws, almost every law we design for the safety of the children, for in the, you know, to protect children because of the children. And it seemed like uh, during the two and a half years uh, we went through these experiments, social policy experiments on trying to reduce COVID infections. Uh, these were infections that were not going to dramatically affect those under the age of basically 21. Um, but they took the brunt of the punishment for it. It seems like we used the children to soothe the anxieties of the adults. Do you think I'm putting it too strongly? Well, I would say that to a point, but I, I, I really think it's worth drilling down more closely to okay. the special interests that were involved okay, in influencing good. public policy. Uh, you know, we, we are here in the wake of the Virginia election, and even though, as we've talked about before, it, it you know, the result is is focused on more than the reality, uh-huh. we did have a recall here of a very popular Democratic governor, and a lot of that energy behind those political results, and certainly what we're going to be seeing as we head into the fall, is 
really a response by adults, in this case parents, uh, particularly parents of kids in public schools, that I think are going to be a deciding political factor uh, in many races to come. I think we're going to see a record number of people running for school boards this fall. Yes. Uh, for city council. We're seeing it in Phoenix. Races. In Phoenix and Scottsdale. My gosh. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so these are adults. Yep. These are parents. Yep. Um, and they are responding to the actions of other adults. And uh, so that, uh, I, I just think it's worth, you know, splitting apart here as we've talked about some of the decisions made by uh, school boards, school districts, uh, influenced by teachers' unions, uh, these are what uh, these are the adults that have made many of these lockdown decisions and maintaining those lockdowns. Uh, and now, of course, we're beginning to see uh, the real implications of those decisions on the health of our kids. There's an interesting resistance, too, that's coming out from what you're saying, isn't there, uh, Pete Peterson? We're talking to Pete Peterson, dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. It's an interesting resistance when parents who might be more conservative uh, were showing up at these and are showing up at these school board meetings and are running. It's as if the uh, those that have controlled them for so long really reacted and retracted in a in a in a non democrat a very non democratic sense almost as if we were invading the territory that they kind of staked out as their own in an odd way does that make are you seeing some oh, of that too oh absolutely yeah absolutely you know we never used to been, see republicans here who are you you don't belong here maybe you're even a terrorist I mean, it's yeah been the, right. it's been the great irony of this right and i i do a lot of work with local governments but uh, and have, uh, you know, a lot of friends and people I respect work in local governments. But it is fair to say that for years, local government officials, school board leaders have decried the fact that nobody shows up <laughs> right. for right. our school board right. meetings. Right. And all of a sudden, when yeah. they start to show up, yeah. people are like, we got what, what's going on with all this? Civic yeah, not that here? idea. Not that That's position. Right. 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 That's right. <laughs> right. Pete, hold that thought. I got it. We hit. Okay. We're hitting up a commercial break real quick. Hold the thought. I'll pick up with this and a bunch of other stuff. Exciting stuff you've been involved in and the Pepperdine School of Public Policy has been involved in uh, for the past few weeks. Uh, and we'll catch up more on that as we go to break. Let me put in a word for cool touch air conditioning and heating. You do not want your air conditioning on the fritz this time of year, especially in Phoenix. Check out the only company I recommend, the only company I use, Cool Touch AC. I love these guys. 17 years in business, A-plus rating with the BBB, never received a complaint with the ROC. Check them out, please, at CoolTouchAC.com or 623-734-1932. That's Cool Touch Air Conditioning. Tell them Seth sent you. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Our guest is Pete Peterson. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you are interested in going into uh, public uh, policy studies, there is no better school in the world. And I have to tell you, when we're talking about the problems in higher, uh, higher education and academia, Pepperdine is the solution. Pete, I wanted to pick up on something with you, if I could, with regard to parents showing up at school board meetings and the Virginia election and that sort of. You had said that we were guided a lot through the COVID experience by professionals 
and mm-hmm. there seemed to be a real divide between professionals and, in many cases, parents, especially when it came to education. You and I, I think it's fair to say, were gobsmacked by the statement of the head of the L.A. Teachers Union when she was in denial about any learning loss that would take place, any right. any mental health problematic outcomes that would take place through the shutdowns. It's almost as if the education professionals, or at least a segment of the educational profession uh profession it almost seemed as if they they had nothing to do with education parents or children it it was it's it was an odd thing to see revealed yeah it was and again uh, that word revealed uh, i think is the uh touchstone for so much of what has happened here in these last uh couple of years yeah. a lot has been revealed and yeah. particularly um on these issues related to schools, the political power of teachers unions. Yeah. And uh, that particular piece you cite, which was of the head of the L.A. largest right. teachers union uh, in Los Angeles yeah. uh, that appeared in Los Angeles magazine uh, last summer, yeah. was really bracing yeah. uh, in that it showed uh, a real um, – the interest, the true interest of these uh, union leaders was really about their own political power and dismissing anyone who would raise issues of what is this doing to the kids. And for decades, the ability of teachers unions during political campaigns to simply put up in television ads a picture of your teacher to say, is this who we want to harm by policy A or policy B, was really sufficient to win the day in many of these political campaigns. And I think what has been revealed, again, to use that term over the last couple of years, is that voters can now separate their affection for their kids' teachers from the power and actions of the teachers' unions. Right. And as we talked about regarding the Virginia race, when pollsters began asking questions of parents with kids in public schools, they ipso facto introduced a new political category that I think is going to be quite powerful uh, this fall across the country. I guess in the 70s, 60s and 70s, the Randy Weingarten of his era, but in many ways more famous culturally, was a man named Albert Shanker. And he, you know, the only quote anyone remembers from him is saying, as soon as children pay union dues, they will be my first concern. That's what we're seeing, isn't it? I mean, that's what we're yeah. saying. We shall not confuse what a teacher's union's interest is with the education and care and protection of our children. They are two different interests, aren't they? Right, they are. And Again, it's understandable. Yeah, sure. Well, right? it's a guilt, yeah. And, and I think what's been so difficult politically for parents uh, who are really seeking out the best interests of their kids has have been able to bifurcate their, again, very understandable support for their kids' teachers uh, from the unions that are essentially making public policy. Uh, they're their teachers are not making public policy individually, certainly in concert as part of a union they are. But 
when you get a chance to hear from the leaders themselves, um, you you really do get a, a clear sense of where their interests lie, and it is not, by and large, in the interests of, of kids and parents. Do you worry at Pepperdine, uh, where you are at the School of Public Policy, uh, do you worry about the pipeline coming up, or do you have so many uh, enrollees that come from a little bit more of a, 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 a education work experience that it's a little bit of a less concern in your field, in your specific field of education? You know, well, I would say for us at, at Pepperdine, we have great access to terrific students that are increasingly coming to us from around the country, um, not just in uh, California or even in the Southwest. So, oh, they just need that, to visit your campus once, and, <laughs> and they're good. They're, that's, they're, right. They're, yeah. that's right. That's right. That's right. Take the uh, take the online virtual campus tour. Right. Uh, right. And, and that's enough. But I would say this, and I'm certainly not the first person to say this: uh, the discipline that is quite concerning are many. Uh, not all, but many of these graduate schools of education, out of which yeah. uh, teachers and policymakers right. are coming. Now, we touch on education policy here at the policy school, and I think we see things through a lens that many of these graduate schools of education don't. But I do think it is worth examining uh, and and going a little bit further upstream to see, well, where are these people who think in these ways coming from? Mm-hmm. And again, we've, we've talked about the influence of folks like Paulo Freire mm-hmm. and Dewey and others. Where their influence is seen most acutely are in these graduate schools of education. Right. And I keep forgetting that. And I'm glad you're reminding it. It is those graduate schools of education that feed this industry, don't they? And that kind of create their own guilt and their own gilded interests, if I can just play with the pun for a moment. Which is one of the things I love about you bringing in, you know, such diverse scholarship as well as a student body. Um, Scholars you bring in, uh, some of them are regular guests of this show, Bill McClay. Glenn Lowry, Robert George. I want to talk to you about two of them and then the third separately for an obvious reason. But you've brought in, uh, let's say, Glenn Lowry, who's now at Brown, Bill McClay, who's now at Hillsdale. And they were were recipients of the Bradley uh, Prize. I read their speeches on air. The Bradley Prize Mm -hmm. is – well, anyway, they they were recipients of the Bradley Prize. And in the case of Lowry – it's he's an African-American and he was talking about issues having to do with race and society and race and economics and that sort of thing. With the case of Bill McClay, it was his work in studying and teaching and writing about American history. Seems to me you couldn't have two more important issues dividing our culture and our country right now than the issues of race and how we teach American history. What what two better people to give an award to than those two? No, you're right. And I had the, the great uh, pleasure of uh, receiving an invite from Bill to be there that evening in D.C. And I have to say, as a spectator hearing these speeches, it was it was daunting. Uh, it, it it began with with Bill's piece, uh, his speech, uh, which he had given me a little bit of a heads up that he was going to go in a very serious direction. Yes. Oh, it was. And yeah. uh, of course, the theme was: Are we a serious country? Right. 
Right. And um, the, the challenges throughout his speech were, I think, uh, were really worth considering. And I'm so glad that you read the speech on air. It is a speech worth uh, really exploring and, and reading and, and thinking about. The Lowry speech that followed it was also very much about, certainly from his perspective as an economist, but also as one who has uh, become... I think such a great voice on issues of race yeah. was this understanding as as an American, what do I own of our history and the Western civilization tradition? Exactly and, and right. Yeah, can I pick up on that with you a little bit? Yeah. Both of those things. When we come right, back, let me take this quick commercial break. Pete Peterson is our guest. He's the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Public Policy. Pepperdine. Edu. Let me also put in a word. For our good friends at Balance of Nature, balanceofnature.com, their fruits and veggies. I take them every single day. I think they're responsible for my making uh, my personal uh, personal records on running and biking as I have been making, especially as uh, I just uh, think more and more of this great natural product. 100% natural, third-party tested, boost your immunity, your health, and your energy with the power of pure, potent plants. Balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Pete Peterson will be right back with us. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. Pete Peterson is our guest. He's the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. Talk about two speeches he was present for with two scholars he brings to Pepperdine um, uh, deliberately and regularly. Uh, Bill McClay, first of all, Wilford McClay, Pete. The theme of his speech was, are we a serious country? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you're in a very serious business uh, yourself uh, and what you do at the Pepperdine School. You know, you're training students. You're training um, students to what? Fix institutions, hopefully improve people's lives. The case McClay lays out is that this is going to be a heavier and heavier lift when you look at how casually so many of our, to go back to the word we were using before, professionals and elites, how unseriously they have taken their jobs in the context of the larger country or polis in which they operate, right? It's going to be a heavier lift for you guys, I think. Well, it is, but I'm gratified by the fact that the foundation for this school was laid by the late James Hugh Wilson, as we talked about mm-hmm. on a number of occasions. And it was really Wilson who understood from his time teaching for many years at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government that one of the things that was missing there that he wanted to bring here and instill here was that policymakers were getting too quantitative and technocratic. Right. They were getting too focused on their own individual expertise Mm -hmm. at the exclusion of a broader body of knowledge. And so when he came here, his main objective was building in this unique liberal arts curriculum into what is often seen as a fairly quantitative, technocratic graduate degree in this Master of Public Policy. And in that, I think the importance of our approach to policy education is more relevant now than ever. This this understanding that 
policymakers and political leaders really do need to have a full, what I would call a 360-degree sense of the policies that they're determining, Good. not only in the quantitative aspect, but also using history and philosophy, a certain degree of understanding of what Wilson called the moral sense in making policy decisions, and a certain humility that will seek out answers to questions as opposed to just moving forward in one's own narrow area of expertise uh, to say that this is the decision that we should make. And again, COVID is just chapter and verse proof that uh, hyper-focused, expert-driven public policy fails the public. You just explained something to me that I have spent 40 years trying to figure out. You just did it when you talked about humility. You know, before there was the Pepperdine School, I was in grad school in Claremont, and the big fight at the time was uh, methodology uh, versus traditional political philosophy and political science understandings by, you know, reading the great works and Yep. And and examining the, uh, the 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 great intellects and the methodologists won, and it seems to me, Pete, that if you are going to base your entire outlook on public policy, and namely we're talking about the field of political science right now or whatever they rename these departments, and you base it on methodology and statistical regression analysis. Right there is the end of humi- humility. There is no humility yep. when you have put. Uh, every public policy debate into a one plus one equals two category. Well, and not only that, um, we are, we are now moving into a place, and we've certainly seen evidence of it again in in COVID response, where we're no longer a democratic republic. Right. We are no longer right. operating in a policy making sphere that allows for public input and accountability on the policies that are affecting our everyday lives. And so these decisions are being moved further and deeper into the administrative state and away from the engagement or supervision of the public through elected officials. And so this, this virtue, this civic virtue of humility is so important to the life of a republic. That's right, because when you get into that level of methodological expertise and elitism, you end up crowding out, dismissing, and then ultimately, I think, debasing another word, another N word, nature, human nature. Yep. Uh, that's yep. because. Do you have time for one more segment, or do, are you good? To, sure do. Uh, yeah. Great, because I, I, I want to pick up with you on Glenn Lowry's piece too. Pete Peterson is our guest. He is the dean at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. I'm Seth Pete Peterson as our guest. He's the dean of the Pepperdine School of Public Policy, publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Check it out if you are interested in engaging our society and trying to improve it, fix it, you name it. Pete, the other great Bradley speech and award recipient was Glenn Lowry, someone you've also brought out to Pepperdine as well. Um, And he gave a speech on... um, in some respects, a tougher issue than Bill McClay, uh, in some respects. And it's the issue that I guess, um, what, what, what can I say about it? Race in America, it will ever be with us. Um, for those of us that wish it weren't ever with us uh, forever, Glenn Lowry seems to show a way out 
his voice, however, is um, it's somewhat it's 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 part of a wilderness, a growing wilderness, but it's still in the wilderness a little bit. Maybe I'm miscategorizing or mischaracterizing it, but tell me what you took from his speech and, and what your view is of Glenn's views on race in America. Well, certainly, I in in his speech at the Bradley Awards, I was reminded of many of the comments he made in law in detail. You know, you're limited to basically 10 minutes for the Bradley Prize speeches, and he spoke here for at least 45 minutes. <laughs> um, so, in many ways, it was a a distillation of many of the points that yeah. he made here. But he's an economist. He knows how to do that. He knows how to do yeah, yeah. Right. He can ta- he can right. put forty five into ten, right? <laughs> okay. <That's> right. <laughs> okay. Um and and but in that he is he is making an argument that Martin Luther King Junior made, that James Baldwin made and others have made, which is to say I love America. I love what it stands for. And it is, I am part of it, and it is part of me. Right. That was the interesting part that you don't hear very often, that second half, about how this is his culture. Right. And and we we all together have this experience of a common culture. Of course, there are microcultures within the larger American culture. But this degree of affiliation and ownership of being an American and all that entails and means is something that Dr. Lowry was claiming there on the stage and has done this in other places. His speech at the National Conservatism uh, Convention as well earlier this year had also some of these very similar notes. And it, I, it was it was powerful to hear it condensed down into this 10-minute call, uh, essentially this, this Jeremiah in many ways, to say that uh, basically, and, and not to make this too simplistic, we really are all in this together. I'm a part of you, and you are a part of me, and we together are a part of this American project. And that drawing that affiliation one to another across races, ethnicities, ages, which again, at, at its essence, is really what's so powerful about America. It's not... And, and McClay makes this point, too. It's not so much in our diversity, but in our unity out of our diversity. Uh, that really was what uh, Dr. Lowry was claiming. He may have done this at Pepperdine. He probably didn't have the chance to do it at, at the Bradley speech. But I have seen him give speeches before, Pete, where he talked about Western civilization as his inheritance, yep. too. Uh, Martin Luther King uh, gave a talk about, you know, at Crozier, he was inspired by the great works of Western civilization, you know, from Rousseau to Shakespeare. Somehow that became, you know, inappropriate in America. But Glenn was reviving it in one speech. I saw him saying, you know, this is this is this is my civilization too. Shakespeare is mine. Milton is mine. That's right. Right. And and that was kind of. In a way, the magic, I thought, or the secret sauce anyway, of what Martin Luther King was summoning on us to, it was something we could all invest and 
be a part of by taking it to the foundations of America, the Declaration and Constitution, which he quoted from all the time, King did. That's right. And spoke about right. his glory. the way Frederick Douglass did. And that's something that could appeal to every American. And that is what's gone now, right? It's a weird transmogrification to think that we, if we talk that way, according to the new dispensation, makes us the racists. Odd, huh? It is. And again, the, the phrase that King used in his I Have a Dream speech about seeing the founders, seeing the Declaration as a quote-unquote promissory note, really takes a lot more real estate in than maybe what appears at first glance. Because to, to take the Declaration as a promissory note is to take on credit and trust the people who wrote that. Nice. And in so doing, and expanding upon beyond the founders to the broader tradition of Western civilization that in many ways found its culmination in the American founding, uh, is really where Lowry is going to as well. But if we get to a place where we can't trust the founders, and we can't trust the writers of that promissory note, then where do we have to right. build some sort of common life upon? Right. Where will there be unity? Where will there ever be a notion of equality if there's no commonality? I mean, it, it, right. the notion of, of, of equality embraces the notion or must at least depend upon the notion of commonality in some form of unity, some form of common culture, some form of common history, which drives you back to Maclay. That's why I think the two of them together are the same, are, are opposite sides of the same coin that really does carry forward where we're supposed to go. It's why I love your dedication to bringing in scholars like that. Pete, we could go another hour, but we'll have more time next time we visit. We didn't get to Robert George and free speech. We will. We have plenty of time on this stuff. I think we'll last at least another two weeks, don't you? <laughs> Pete, have a great weekend. Thank you for everything, sir. You too, Seth. So good to be with you. You betcha. I'm Seth Liebson. We will be right back. Welcome back, and thanks for spending some of your afternoon with us. Some of this afternoon was brought to you by our good friends at Y Refi. Y Refi is a fantastic local company that is offering to investors a fixed no-load interest rate up to 10.25%, all in a collateralized and secure portfolio. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm. It's run by great people. I know them well. They are doing very well, and you can too. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, and R-E-F-Y.com. They help people dig out of debt the right way by helping them pay off their debts and doing so with dignity and getting a lot of benefits along the way beyond just doing the right thing. Again, check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then R-E-F-Y.com. Let me close with the way Bill McClay closed his speech Pete Peterson and I were just talking about. He uh, he closes his speech by quoting the novelist John Dos Passos, who in 1941 said, In times of change and danger, when there is a quicksand of fear under men's reasoning, a sense of continuity with generations gone before can stretch like a lifeline across the scary present and get us past that idiot delusion of the exceptional now 
the exceptional now that blocks good thinking. The exceptional now that blocks good thinking. Yes, we live in danger, in a time of danger, McClay says. But consider this. When Dos Passos wrote those words in 1941, Hitler's formidable war machine controlled all of continental Europe, and only the British Isles held out. Though we knew, no one knew for how long. Dos Passos could have been forgiven for thinking that this terrifying moment was without historical precedent. Instead, he invoked the past and the idea of a historical consciousness that could stretch like a lifeline across the scary present and help us to know that we remain connected to those who came before us. To do that, we first have to learn or relearn our story. In so doing, we will discover that we also are learning about ourselves and about all the things of which ordinary people are capable even us, when we are allowed to breathe the air of freedom and hope. And thus, perhaps once again, if we do that, we can become a serious country. Have a great weekend, folks. And um, until Monday, God bless you all. And class is dismissed. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.